Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting material and see if we can learn a little bit more about them. Joining us today is Dr. Howard Brown, who is a professor of English and linguistics at the University of Niigata Prefecture. How are you doing today? Oh, just fine, thanks. And, uh, thanks for the invitation. Oh, no, it, you were recommended to us uh, after we spoke to uh, one of your long-term collaborators, uh, Dr. Annette Bradford, and oh. she said uh, you should also uh, talk to Howard. So I thought that's that's a really good idea. And we've I think we've met <laughs> a couple of times before at JALT, I think. I think we have, yeah. We've met at conferences a few times. The paper that we're going to be speaking about today is actually the final chapter of the book that we spoke about with Annette Bradford. So the title of the chapter is Final Thoughts, Have We Seen This Before? The Information Technology Parallel. This is of course connected to ENI, English Medium Instruction. To begin our discussion, could you tell us a little bit about how long you've been working in the field and kind of what drew you to EMI as a research subject? Well, I started working in the in EMI as a teacher 13, 14 years ago, maybe. I, I had a job working as an EAP teacher, English for Academic Purposes teacher, in a graduate school program that was exclusively EMI. All the classes taught in English for mostly international students. When I moved to my current job at the University of Niigata Prefecture, I think part of the reason I was hired for this job is because of that experience working with EMI students and working with English for Academic Purposes. The university was planning on developing uh, an EMI program. Uh, I should mention, I, I work for a university that used to be a junior college. And at the time I was hired, we switched to from two years to four years. And the, the powers that be at the university wanted part of that switch to be integrating EMI programs into uh, the university offerings. About a year after I, I was hired there, I was sort of tasked to be part of the team that's putting together um, the EMI program. I worked with uh, another language teacher and two people from our economics program to sort of put together the framework for what our program would look like. As the first step, I went looking in the literature for models, examples, uh, best practices, and I didn't find anything. This was 12 years ago, maybe 11 years ago. And at that time, there was almost nothing in the literature on EMI programs in Japan. It was still a very new idea. And so I was drawn to it as a research topic, mostly as a way to support my own practice in terms of curriculum planning and program design, because I, I felt like I wasn't seeing anything in the literature. So I kind of had to answer a lot of the questions I had through my own research. Right. It would be fair to say that you are one of the leading experts on EMI in the Japanese context having worked on it for over a decade now and, and getting into the field in order to kind of fill a space that you had noticed. But when I, when I spoke to Annette, we kind of covered the process of writing a book. And so I don't want to rehash that point, but I'd like to talk to you about one of the things that is kind of connected to the process of a book, but from your perspective. So what did, what did even you who have been you know, researching this for, for so long and in, in so much depth, what did you learn about EMI in the process of producing uh, this book about it? Either something new or you felt some factor was better elucidated for you? I think there were, there were a few things that I can talk to uh, in, in those terms. One, some, something that struck me as a new idea for me was just the range of possible contexts that EMI was being implemented in. I sort of knew intellectually 
but it, it didn't come home to me until I started working on this book and looking at the chapters that people were sending in and looking at the chapter proposals and talking to potential writers about their context, their situation. And I, I really got a much clearer sense of how varied the implementation of EMI was. I went through a few years where I was a bit pessimistic about it all. And I, I used words like chaos and random quite a bit for the, the sort of nationwide implementation of EMI. I'm much less pessimistic now. I, I think I see a lot of positive trends happening. But so I, I think I can shift from words like chaos to words like variety. And that's really what came home to me putting this book together, getting in submissions. I, in the end, we, we had submissions from about 25 people, submissions or, or proposals from about 25 people. And they were all working in completely different contexts and had very, very different experiences. And it, it really drove home to me the point that there isn't really one Japanese model of EMI. And there isn't really one case that you can point to and say, this is what's happening in Japan. It's, it's really varied. So was this so. initial chaos and randomness, was it formed by the government or the Department of Education trying a top-down approach to a one-size-fits-all kind of class or course? I, I think things were happening in both directions. Right. I think there was, there was top-down pressure and there was, for a while there, there was a lot of money involved. You know, we're, we're currently in super global slash top global mm -hmm. funding schemes. And before that, there was the Global 30. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was, a, there was a lot of money on offer without a lot of detailed guidance for what these programs were supposed to look like. So universities were chasing the budgets, chasing the grants, and putting together programs that didn't always suit their own local contexts, mm -hmm. didn't always match what we think the government maybe had in mind for what they wanted the programs to do, mm -hmm. what they wanted the programs to look like. I, I think the top-down aspect of it wasn't so much the government trying to fit everyone into a one-size-fits-all model. Mm. It was more like the government was actually maybe a bit too loose in terms of giving some very vague guidance right. and some very vague guidelines that needed to be interpreted at the local level. And then each local context, the stakeholders in each local context interpreted those wide guidelines extremely differently. So that was sort of from the, the top-down direction. And at the same time, there was a huge upswing in EMI programs that were born more from a bottom-up mm. direction. I think a lot of universities in the, what do you want to call it, second tier, third tier of the mm -hmm. higher education sector, mm -hmm. they sort of looked at what the, what the upper tier universities were doing. And they saw the writing on the wall and they thought, ah, okay, this is the next big thing. We need to be doing this. Right. And that also led to uh, a whole bunch of new programs starting. For example, in my university, we, we started you know, 12 years ago and we started around this time of when the, when the upswing really took off and the number of universities offering programs grew by leaps and bounds. But I think many universities had the same experience I did, looking for models, looking for examples, looking for best practices, and not finding anything. So there was a, there was a huge amount of reinventing the wheel going on. Was it that there weren't models in the Japanese context? I mean, clearly, before Japan was implementing EMI, it had been policies had been enacted in, in other places, in China, Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong. 
to try and increase the proficiency of English speaking in those uh, in those countries. And a lot of them were not particularly successful, to say the least, and also ha often had detrimental negative effect on uh, kind of the, on the content based courses that the, the students weren't learning the content thoroughly enough because it was being delivered in in another language. Were any of the positive aspects of those programs investigated and implemented in Japanese EMI? Yes and no. I, I think there were programs that developed in Japan that that looked abroad and saw, as you said, saw some problematic models. Hmm. And I think there was a lot of not inspiration exactly, but a lot of people who who took a fair warning from experiences elsewhere right. and said, okay, so we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. This is an alley we don't want to go down. Yeah. And I think we did have the advantage of having some things that we might have tried if we, if we hadn't known about these other experiences, sort of having those options cut off. And, mm. and it became clear that these were not the, the way to go. Like, for example, um, South Korea had a very fast and very dramatic initial implementation of EMI. And they went down the mandatory route. And they, they basically said, you know, all universities, all faculty members have to be teaching a certain number of courses in EMI. It was very problematic for them. Over, over time, things have evolved and, and the situation is getting much better now. But the initial implementation was, was extremely problematic in South Korea. And I think we're, we're lucky in a sense, we, we dodged a bullet there in, mm. in that the government of Japan didn't mandate mm -hmm. EMI. And I think that would have been a very problematic decision here as well. You know, looking at overseas models, I think gave us hints about where to go, but not so much from the positive models, more right. from the, you know, learning from issues that others had had. They certainly did uh, go all in on, uh, on EMI. I think at, at one point they required uh, English medium, let's say it was an EMI, but it was an English medium interaction policy uh, that a whole island was made to be English only. Like the Jeju Island mm -hmm. was a, an example of quite an extreme EMI that has, has since been walked back. But I take your point that there were examples of things of what not to do, but not many models of what worked. Yes. I think part of that was timing. Uh, I, I think right. if we were if we were starting again today, mm -hmm. we'd be in a much better position. There's there's been a decade's worth of research on EMI around the world, and there's I think if I was in the same boat I was in a dozen years ago, I'm not sure I would have chosen EMI as a research field because I would have been able to find everything I needed with a quick literature search. Right. Well, so I'm just, I think we're, we're living now in a time when EMI has a real chance to, to grow and blossom, because I think we've learned so much about what the challenges are and what possible solutions are. And we've learned so much about potential models from abroad and from inside Japan as well, that I, I think we now have the sense of direction that I felt was lacking a decade ago. Well, let's let's jump into some specifics then. What would be your policy prescriptions uh, for the short and medium term for Japanese universities based on your experience, if they were looking to either begin an EMI course or expand the courses they had? What would be your, your recommendations based on, uh, based on the, these 10 years? I have several. On the language side, I think it's key to have a realistic understanding of the incoming language level and 
the requirements that the students are going to face in EMI classes. One of the major issues that, that we see in a lot of the programs at the second and third tier universities is a very unrealistic understanding of linguistics challenges. Part of it comes down to the reasons these programs are being implemented at some universities and that it is, it's not really an educational program. It's more of a marketing program. And it's more of something the university can point to and say, you know, we are an international university because we teach some classes in English. Right. And that's, you know, fine. That's, that's something that universities need to do. But I think in doing that, that creates pressure to open these EMI classes to people that aren't going to get anything from them. Right. So you see a lot of universities that don't have um, language proficiency benchmarks in place so that any student is allowed to join an EMI class or they don't have any sort of helpful or any sort of, they don't have a well-formatted connection between the language learning program and the EMI program. Prescription number one would be, take a realistic look at who your incoming students are and how many of them are going to be able to do the work they need to do in EMI classes mm. and what kind of support they're going to need in order to do that. Just being realistic about who your students are and realistic about the linguistic challenges they're going to face. That's, that's one big thing. I think another thing that's definitely necessary is consistent leadership. I think we need <clears throat> better local leadership um, for a lot of EMI classes, a lot of EMI programs. The reason that we are starting an EMI program is unclear. Mm -hmm. We need to have an EMI program because our rival university down the road has one. Right. Or we need to have an EMI program because the university that's one tier above us that a lot of our students want to go to has an EMI program. And mm -hmm. so therefore, if we're going to be a reasonable second choice for those students, we have to have one too. We want to be an international university. So therefore, we need to have an EMI program. I think in a lot of cases, the purpose of the EMI program is to have an EMI program. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. With that purpose in mind, you're going to create an EMI program in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And you're going to, once it's created, you're going to leave it alone and let it do what it will. I don't think that's a terribly effective way to create an EMI program. I think instead we need to have um, local leadership in the local context of the university have a clear sense of why they're doing it. Why are they creating an EMI program? And get all of the stakeholders on the same page and pulling in the same direction in terms of what they're trying to accomplish with this program and whose needs they're trying to serve. Without that, I think it's very difficult to put together a, a coherent program. Right, because the personnel that you're dealing with is going to be different. The, uh, the political system at the university is going to be different. And so just having the rationale be automatic, i.e. we believe that we need these programs and therefore we must have them rather than we have a, a setup at this university that suits the application or we have the staff, we have the student level, we have the, the support. As you say, that's something else I'd like to question you on. When I interviewed a student who had come from Iran to Japan to do their master's and their, and their PhD, Dr. Mabube Rakshandaru, who we interviewed about two months ago at this point, she was talking about how important it was to find a, a course that was wholly taught in English. So a full graduate program, beginning of the master's, the end of the PhD, all taught in English, because although over time her Japanese level improved, it never reached graduate level quickly enough for her to use it 
as part of her studies. And right. she actually chose as her master's and PhD focus, EMI and uh, English taught programs, ETPs, and looked at how they were being implemented and tried to make some advice. So the advice that she came up with related directly to support for the students from the university. And I, at the time, was completing a project on teaching assistants. And so these are people who are between the teacher and the students. They support the teacher in kind of helping their communication. They support the students with, you know, the administration of the class. And do you think that that kind of support program, both for the students from the university and for the teachers from the university, is something that is not set up yet or is, is working really well in some circumstances? I think it's working really well in some circumstances and not in others. There's one point I, I, I think I need to bring up um, when, I, when I talk about EMI. Looking at the EMI situation in Japan as a whole, and over the last 10 years, I've really noticed that the implementation of EMI is polarizing. Mm. One group of universities that are really, maybe some of them started in a more problematic way, or some of them started without a clear vision, or but over time, they've started to move in the right direction. Or other universities that from the get-go started moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a group of universities that are offering clear support to students, setting up reasonable benchmarks, offering support to faculty members, implementing coordination between language and content, implementing coordination between classes taught in L1 and classes taught in English. And there's this whole group of universities that I, that I sort of think of as they're on the right path. They're, they're doing everything they need to do. Or I shouldn't say they're doing everything they need to do, but they're getting there. They're getting there. And then there's this whole other group of universities that are, I guess the simple way to say it is they're just not. They've implemented an EMI program without some of the things I talked about before, without you know the realistic sense of what the challenges are, without the realistic budgeting and planning for resources without any of those, those things. They're not really in a position resource-wise to move in a better direction. Right. Or they're not really interested in moving in a better direction because having the program is the point of the program. Once it exists, there's no real motivation to, to make it work better. When we talk about support, it's almost impossible to talk about what's happening in Japan because we have to consider these sort of two streams Mm. Of, of programs that are happening. I think there are universities that are getting a lot better in terms of their academic support for students. Mm -hmm. Like you said, there are, there are teaching assistant programs. There's a lot of stuff happening now. Um, a lot of universities are implementing greater coordination with language teachers, mm. especially for the domestic students at the undergraduate level. There's a lot more coordination between what gets taught in Japanese and what gets taught in English. Um, there's a lot of in-class and outside support for students being offered. There's a lot more faculty development opportunities for the teachers. That's really um, and all of, all of this, I think, is moving in a very good direction in the sort of stream of schools that are on the right path, so to speak. And about what percentage of the universities that have EMI programs are in which stream? Is it, is it breaking down 50-50? Is it 60-40 on the positive side? What would you say? It's it's really hard to put a number on it because obviously I haven't been to all, you know, 300 some odd universities that have EMI programs. But I, I would say over the past 10 years, I've either visited or talked to people who work at conservatively 75, 80 EMI programs. Mm -hmm. And 
I think it's sort of breaking down 30, 70 with 30% going in the right direction and 70 being somewhat random. I think possibly some of it comes from an element of possibly from the faculty, possibly from you know, more traditional stakeholders, uh, a kind of resistance to the wider socio-linguistic issue of internationalization equaling Englishization. Mm -hmm. And we've had people on the podcast in the past who have, by their own admission, spoken out against the implementation of EMI programs, and also uh, something that's of personal interest to you, have spoken out against setting up a journal of mm. English medium instruction and formed resistance to that. Do you think that there's any validity in this concern uh, in the Japanese context? I think there is validity in the concern, but not in the Japanese context. Mm -hmm. I, I think that concern would worry me much more if Japan had taken the South Korean approach and mandated right. the use of EMI. I think that concern would worry me a lot more if we were in uh, a post-colonial context where there was a real danger of domain loss because the home language never really had a fully developed academic position. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think in some of those contexts, the spread of EMI, especially the mandated spread of EMI, is concerning. Here in Japan, I don't really see it as a problem. We're at the point now where about 40, 45% of universities offer some kind of EMI program. Mm. And the vast majority of those serve two to three percent of students on campus. Right. So I, I, I don't think we're, we're in a position where Japanese is in danger as an academic language. Then let's take it outside the Japanese context, because I'm assuming that the majority of the submissions to the new journal, of which you are a, a, an editor, uh, will be coming from places that are not Japan. And maybe this is too much of a question that's, it's, that you're not going to be able to answer, but will the editorial board be giving any weight to these concerns and the contexts in which research that is submitted for publication, the context from which this research is coming, given your concern? I hope so. Honestly, the, the journal is very new. I'm a member of the editorial board, but I'm not I don't have a position as an editor, so my voice in editorial policy is going to be limited. And because the journal is very new, a lot of editorial policies are not, are not laid out yet. Mm -hmm. That's sort of discussions that, that are going to happen going forward. But I think as part of the Journal of EMI, I think there is definitely a place for discussions about when and where implementation of EMI is warranted and when and where implementation of EMI is more problematic. I think that's a discussion that needs to be had. I'm not against the implementation of EMI if it's not a mandated thing and if it's, if it's something that is going to be supplementing education in the, the local L1 as opposed mm. to replacing it. I do know there are, there are some contexts where there's going to be a danger of EMI taking over and EMI becoming the only legitimate university program to be part of. And I would hate for that to happen, but I do acknowledge that it's a danger. But having said that, I don't think formalizing the study of EMI by creating a journal of EMI, I, I don't think that's in any way sort of giving approval to this problematic development that we might see any more than having a you know a journal of agriculture somehow approves or disapproves of agriculture emi is a, is a topic that needs to be studied it needs to be explored um, it needs to be explored in terms of implementation strategies and what works and what doesn't mm. but also these wider <clears throat> questions of 
of when and where should we be doing it? These are questions that also need to be explored in the journal. My concern basically comes from having done research into places like Korea and uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines, and their practices of it. And the one that concerned me the most was Hong Kong. And given that the journal is based out of the city, University of Hong Kong, I believe, certainly some of the senior uh, editors are based there. The, some of the senior editors are, were based in bicontinental, in, in Northern Europe and in Hong Kong. Because Hong Kong was, was a, a case of feeling that the, the standards of English were slipping so much that EMI courses would be mandated in universities, even in going into high schools and causing a lot of stress for the uh, for students of, of an even younger age. So long as these concerns are brought up and discussed and there's room for voices on, on both sides, I think it's something that it's a positive move because as you say, you want to, 10 years ago, you had no way of knowing what best practice was. But having a journal like this and a, and a repository of good practice, I think is going to help out moving forward. On that topic, I, I kind of wanted to bring up the idea of, because this was a, a discussion that I had with uh, Annette and my contention that EMI it can be can be seen as a methodology in and of itself, not just a setting and a way of delivering content, but there needs to be specific methodologies connected to it that wouldn't be used if that content was being taught in the L1. Would you agree with that? I, I would say to some extent, yes. But honestly speaking, I think disciplinary differences would outweigh that. Mm -hmm. I think the difference between the way history is taught and the way economics is taught is probably much bigger than the difference between the way those two disciplines might be taught in L1 or in English. Assuming you have a talented teacher who is paying attention to what their students need, I think there are, there are some things about teaching in English that are especially challenging, and there are some things you can do to make up for those challenges. But I'm not sure I would say that there is there's a method of EMI. I, I think there's maybe a layer of methodology that you can you can put on top of your own disciplinary approach. I was just thinking in terms of the courses that I've taught as EMIs in the past, I have had to, well, before we started, we were having a conversation about getting back into the classrooms after the you know, coronavirus problem and, and the feedback that you get from students just by seeing their faces, seeing their activities, taking notes and, you know, the positive and negative reinforcement that, that you need when you're trying to work out, have they got it? Have they not got it? And I think that you're right, that it kind of adds that extra layer that the, the teacher has to be a little bit more switched on than they would be in the L1, because in the L1, you're assuming that the language isn't the problem. But when you're doing it in English or in an, the L, in an L2, you're kind of having to work out, is it the concept that, they don't, that they're not getting, or is it the language that's causing them the issue? Mm -hmm. I also think something that often doesn't come up enough in discussions of EMI is I think a lot of faculty members who teach EMI classes and go through faculty development programs for EMI, I think they're very much focused on the fact that they are teaching in their second language. Yeah. But what's actually more important is to remember that the students are working in their second language. Right. So let's say, let's say for example, we have a class of, of native English speakers at a university in New Zealand, Australia, Canada, mm -hmm. wherever. Mm -hmm. And their teacher is a second language speaker. Mm -hmm. This is a very common occurrence. Right. When I was an undergraduate student 
studying chemistry. Two of my feet, my teachers were from Poland. One was French. One had a very thick New Zealand accent. Does that count as L2? I'm not sure. Uh, having worked with some New Zealanders, yes, it does. Okay. <laughs> the fact that the class was in their L2 was much mm. less important than the fact that it was in my L1. Because I, I think if I'm working in my own first language as a student, I think there's a lot of leeway. And I mm. think students who are working in their own first language have the wherewithal. They have the mental capacity to make up for or gloss over a lot of other things that, that might otherwise be problematic. Mm. But I think if I'm teaching a class in English, which is, which is my own first language, but I'm teaching it to a group of students for whom it's a second language, that's a very different experience. Mm. And I, I think, like you said, there's an added layer of, are we having communication trouble because of the concept mm. or because of the language? Understanding that distinction, I think, is very important. And understanding the possibility that that's where the problem lies is I think very important. That sensitivity to where the problem might be, I, I think is a key point. But honestly speaking, I don't know if that's a question of, of there being a particular EMI methodology, or if that's more of just a question of being a sensitive, talented teacher. Mm -hmm. I, I just had, I had two colleagues um, from my own university who just completed a training course offered by the Oxford EMI group. And it was very funny for me to read their sort of post-training report back to our university, because a lot of the things that they said impressed them about the course, or a lot of the things that they said were, you know, something that they wanted to take with them into their own teaching. A lot of them were things that I looked at and I thought, well, that's not an EMI thing. That's a good teaching thing. Right. <laughs> and I think yeah. if we focus faculty development for EMI much more on just what is good teaching with mm. a little bit of layer of the special needs of students who are working in their second language, mm. then, then I think we're in a good place in terms of the, the overall quality of the teaching. I think it starts from the idea that anytime you are forced to think about your activities in the class in a conscious way, uh, i.e. to borrow a, a word from uh, Dr. Mark Helgeson, to be mindful of your context. Anytime that you are required to actually sit down and think, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? How could I do this better? And then creating positive feedback loops within your own mind in the classroom. I think anytime a teacher is required to do that, you're going to improve as a teacher. I like the idea of, of saying that a switched on energetic, talented teacher like that to me is much more important than perhaps someone who is the highest proficiency in the target language of the class, I would much rather have someone who is, as you say, switched on, knows the content, cares about the students, and you know, works through any problems in the class with the students rather than just delivering things directly and, and working only from a, a selfish kind of way. So how long was the uh, Oxford EMI course and kind of what were the, what were the course requirements? Uh, well, this year it was, it was a little bit different because of you know, everything that's happening in 2020. Of course. Um, so it was an, it was an online program. They, they worked through, through some contents on a MOOC and mm -hmm. then they, they had discussion sessions and uh, some uh, lectures and workshops online. It was a week long program, four or five hours a day, I think. Mm -hmm. Part of it was contextual. There were, there were some workshops on just sort of developing an understanding of what is the situation of EMI around the world and, and what is the situation in Japan just so that all the participants have a, have a sense of where their particular 
classroom experiences fit in the big picture of what's going on. I think there was some language sensitivity stuff. There were mm -hmm. a few workshops on things like, well, trying to address that question of looking at a student who's not understanding and trying to figure out, is this a language issue? Is this a content issue? Is this a conceptual issue? But quite a bit of it was, was simply down to what I would call best practices for teaching. Right. I'm quite interested in that personally. I mean, it's ever since I've finished my PhD in 2014, my wife thought, yes, no more study. Like you can just focus on that. <laughs> and I, because uh, it had been eight years at that point. And I'm always threatening to go back and do something like a CELTA or a DELTA or something like that. But I think that's more in the English as a foreign language kind of area. And I'm, I'm not really in that area anymore. But uh, a course on how to become better at teaching uh, an English medium instruction course, I think would be quite helpful. So I'll look into that and, and threaten her that I'm going to go back and, <laughs> but, but it's at Oxford. So that's, a, that's a named university. So. <laughs> well, it's at Oxford and there, and the courses for Japanese faculty members are, are normally hosted at ICU in Tokyo. So it's a, it's a double oh. named university. Oh yeah. I've, uh, I have former colleagues who worked at I, ICU and they keep saying I should go up and visit. So I think I might, I'll have a think about it. When, when everything gets opened back up and options are back on the table, I think uh, that might yes. be something to look into. I usually this, at this point, um, I like to ask our contributors about the process of researching and how to be a productive researcher, how to keep your motivation up. I mean, I know you are working on a Kakenhi funded project with Annette and another professor. So that's probably keeping you busy at the moment. But for younger researchers and people who are trying to get into the industry, and it's often a hard slog trying to build up a CV, do you have any advice for people who are in that position and kind of maybe what areas they should be focusing on or how to keep up motivation in times like these? There are two things that I did that I think maybe would translate to, to other people's situations. Maybe three things. One was for a long time, and, and even now I still do it, I just keep a notebook of questions because questions occur to me fairly regularly. Mm. And sometimes I write down a question and a, a few days later I look it up and I find the answer. And other times I write down a question and I try to look it up and there is no answer. And that becomes a research question. Right. So when things occur to you, when, when you read a paper and you get to the end and you have that sort of little feeling in the back of your mind, but what about... Blah, blah, mm, blah. Right. That's a, that can be the spark that ignites your research career. Right. So keeping track of or, or just writing down somewhere, all of these little questions, all of these what about or what if questions, I, I think is very valuable. But then the other thing you need to do is something that when I was a younger researcher and when I was, when I was starting out, I didn't do very successfully. I didn't do it until about halfway through my career is focus. I think finding a topic that you care about right. and finding a topic that you you want to be known as the ABC guy. Mm -hmm. um, I think now when, when I go to conferences, everyone knows, oh, that's Howard, that's the EMI guy. And that's because it's a, it's a topic that I really started to care about. Right. And I really, because I care about it, I'm interested in almost everything about it. I can keep myself motivated, I think, because of that focus. When I was a younger researcher, I was still looking for a focus. And when I look back through papers I published in the first you know, five or six years that I was publishing papers, none of them are about the same thing. Right. You know, I, have a, I have a paper about literature circles, and I have a paper about how haiku affects pronunciation, and I have a paper about 
conversation strategies. They're, mm. they're all mm. over the place. And looking back, I, I can see in my own writing history, I was searching for something. I was searching for the thing that was going to capture my attention. And so I was jumping from topic to topic. And it wasn't until, as I told you before, until I started working on developing this EMI program and started to realize that, okay, this is, this is a place that I could make a difference. This is a place that, that has a topic I care about. This is a place that will hold my interest. Mm. That's when I really started to focus and go deeper into one particular area. I kind of wish it had happened earlier. I wish I hadn't spent, <laughs> you know, six or seven years wandering around a bunch of different topics. But, um, but in the end, I'm, I'm also kind of glad I did. If I had, for example, tried to do my PhD research on any of those other topics that I had done, one or two papers on in the past. I think it would have been a very hard slog. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think trying to work out what topic you want to do, particularly for a PhD that's going to take up so much of your time, energy, often money, it does require you to have a you know, something that you really do, you really do care about. I agree with you there. So the project that you're, you're doing right now is, I'm assuming connected to EMI, what particular area? So we are, we're sort of looking at from the student's point of view, why are they taking EMI classes? Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of students go into this with the idea that EMI is somehow an extension of English language learning, and that by taking EMI classes, they are going to be improving their English. I can see this in my in my own teaching context. I, I have a few students who are taking all of the EMI classes that our university has to offer, mm -hmm. even though they're in you know economics, international relations, and applied linguistics in those three fields, mm. which have nothing to do with each other. And and clearly the students are not interested in all three of those topics, but they're just taking the classes because they're in English and they think they see it as a learning opportunity for English. That's sort of one of the underlying factors that's that's guiding the student's choice. Are you sure you haven't identified a, a hidden group of Japanese polymaths? <laughs> that that might be that might be the the conclusion to this study. We might have we might have discovered a, a super group of brainiacs. People who are interested in the the international relations applications of applied linguistics. A hundred percent. That's right. A hundred percent. Hundred percent. From the institutional side, from the government, from business leaders, and from universities, EMI is very clearly tied to this idea of global jinzai, especially among domestic students. I know you're familiar with the idea, but just for any listeners who aren't familiar with it, global jinzai is, is a Japanese term that's basically translates as globalized human resources or globally capable human resources. It's related to sort of the well-known sense of, of global citizenship. But I think in Japan, it's arguably a bit more transactional because it's very much about business success and, and economic well-being of the country. Right. A lot of EMI programs are sold to students, especially domestic students, sold to students in terms of becoming global jinzai. EMI is the way to open the door to an international career. Mm. EMI is the way to open the door to working for an international company or for a Japanese company, but in an international office or working for an NGO, working for, you know, in the extreme cases, working for the UN or the World Bank. Mm -hmm. EMI is, is meant to be opening all these doors. And if you look at the marketing materials for universities, it's very clear that this is the message they're giving, that EMI is your key to the world. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious about whether or not that's true. And so what our project is looking at 
is the, the post-graduation career outcomes of students in EMI programs. Wow. And we're curious about international students and domestic students. Actually, I think my, my research partner, Annette, is maybe a little bit more interested in the international students, and I'm a little bit more interested in the domestic students. But we want to look at their job hunting process when they're in third and fourth year universities. Are they having a different experience with job hunting? Mm. And then after graduation, are they getting into careers that are, you know, in a meaningful, meaningful way different than students graduating from a similar L1 program? Sounds fascinating. And uh, once you have come to your conclusions and uh, you have something to help inform the future directions of Japanese universities, uh, I'd love to have you back on the show, maybe with Annette, well, and we can talk about it um, a little bit more. This has been an absolutely fascinating trip through your research, Dr. Brown. Well, maybe and the next time we talk, we can uh, we can actually speak face-to-face. -face. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't yes. that be something? I'm, I'm slowly curating a menagerie of recording equipment that can travel with me. So we're hoping to do a, a couple of live shows uh, sometime in the future, hopefully next year. So oh, uh, nice. that'll be great. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Brown. It's been wonderful to speak to you, and I wish you all the best of luck. Uh, with your future uh, research. The paper we've been discussing today is Final Thoughts, Have We Seen This Before? The Information Technology Parallel. We didn't get to talk very much about the information technology side of it, but I think you've explained where uh, they, those issues came in and also uh, where EMI is going from now. So uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been, a, it's been a great fun. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.